ominous. May 3rd, 1999, the Oklahoma City metro area began to hear that this massive tornado was making its way across the metro. I was 19, 20 years old about that time. I was at my girlfriend's house, Kristen, who later obviously became my wife. I was with her, and we had tuned in, as you did back in those days. You turned the TV on. The voice you heard is the famous uh, meteorologist from Oklahoma City, Gary England. And so he's beginning to share, as other weatherman did and meteorologists did, that this storm was intensifying and it became an F5 tornado. So we began to make preparations uh, and plan what we would do, where we would go, how we would handle this. And so they, my, my girlfriend, Kristen, her family, we'd, they'd gone across the street to seek shelter. Uh, I got in my car and was driving back about five miles down the road to my, my parents' house to check on them, my family. And they had gone to a, a local elementary school to seek shelter there. And so I hopped back in my car making my way back over to Kristen's house there, again, about five miles, and I wasn't going to make it in time. Now, the, the storm had started to dissipate as it came through Oklahoma City into my part of uh, where we lived. So it wasn't quite what you saw on the screen, but it was still super strong, straight line winds. So I was in my red Z28 Camaro, all right, which is not which is not the best vehicle to be in in the midst of a tornado, let me just say that. But anyways, I pulled over on the side of the road and these straight line winds were coming through and I could feel the, the shocks on the car that were doing this and the, the car was gently kind of lifting and up and down just at the force of these winds. And the storm was devastating. 36 people died, over a billion dollars in damage, thousands of houses were destroyed, it was absolutely a tragic, tragic event. For 20 years or so, I got the opportunity to work with teenagers as a student pastor. I walked beside, have walked beside countless young men and women who are facing very similar type of atmospheric conditions, if you will, in their homes be it a mom or a dad or a sibling or other circumstances, but just walk beside them as they went through very difficult storms in life. Emotional, physical, mental, spiritual storms. And I would say this, I've seen my fair share of very tragic aftermaths in their lives and in their stories. Today, I want us to talk just about that. I want us to talk about the atmospheric conditions in your homes. Now, why, why don't tornadoes take place very often, maybe in Houston or other parts of the world? It's because you have to have certain conditions in the atmosphere. You have to have uh, a, a, a thunderstorm or a thundercloud. You have to have warm air that's rising in cold air that's dropping. Those three things combined create the conditions that are necessary for a tornado. So simply put, you have to have certain atmospheric conditions for tornadoes to take place. What is the atmosphere of your 
home? What's the atmosphere of your heart? That's the conversation I want to have with you, with us today. If you would, open up your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25 through 29. If you don't have your Bible with you, it's fine. We're going to have those verses on the screen. Here's what I would say to you about what we're about to read. So the conversation we're going to have today is super practical, all right? It's very simple in some ways. And Paul wrote it for a very specific reason. In this letter, Paul is writing most likely from a prison cell. He's writing to what we believe to be the church in Ephesus and or at least to Christians in that area, in that day, and in that time. And up until this point in the letter, he's been talking a lot about principles and precepts, things that we should know, things that we should build into our heart and build into our mind. But then he transitions. Verse 25, he uses one word. He says, therefore. It's a transitional word. He's saying, hey, in light of all these things we've talked about up to this point, in light of all these principles and all these precepts, therefore, that word therefore is an emphatic marker. He's saying, hey, now that all these things have happened, let's talk about, practically speaking, what our homes, what our hearts, and what our communities and or our lives should look like. So with that knowledge, let's stand together and let's read God's word. Listen to what it says. Verse 25, he says, Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members one another. Be angry and yet do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Don't give the devil an opportunity. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with one who has need. Verse 29, listen to what it says. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as it is good for edification according to the needs of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Father, this is your word, this is your truth. Father, help it to take root in our heart, help it to show up in our lives. It's not about me or my word, so God, help me just to simply get out of the way. We wanna hear from you. This is our prayer in Christ's name, amen. Please be seated. So, here we go. That word, therefore, Paul's transitioning to super practical things. Now he's talking about personal practice personal practice. He's saying, hey, this is what your life should look like. Look at verse 25. If we're going to protect the atmosphere of our hearts, the atmosphere of our homes, the atmosphere of our community, what's the first thing we bump into? Verse 25, simple, tell the truth. Paul says, speak truth. In 1991, there was a book that was written. It's entitled, The Day That America Told truth or told the truth. There are some stats from that book. Now I know that these stats are 30 years and some change old, but I still want you to hear these. Listen to what it says. 1991, this survey that was taken, that the book was written upon, it says 91% of people lie regularly. Of the people interviewed, 92% said the main reason for lying was to save face. 
20,000 middle school and high school students were surveyed, and they indicated that 92% of those students admitted to lying to their parents in the previous month. The other eight were lying. <laughs> That's the truth. It went on to say 91% of all the respondents said that they were satisfied with their own ethics and character, even though they admitted to lying on a regular basis. Now that's old data. Simple question. Do you think that those stats have gone up or gone down considering the climate and the culture and the world we live in today? I think most of you would say those stats maybe have had a little bit of an uptick, right? Suffice to say, we have, as Christ followers, become pretty comfortable with little white lies. But Paul says, speak truth. He says, hey, put aside all the falsehood. Leave that stuff in the past. Therefore, you're a Christ follower. Therefore, speak truth. Don't tell lies. There's lots of reasons why we do it. Most of them are practical. We lie to make ourselves look better. We lie to protect ourselves from consequences. We lie to gain something that we want, maybe a grade or a promotion or tax benefits. There's lots of reasons that we do it. There's lots of reasons that we do it. But here's the problem. Here's the problem. Lies put us in this position of compromise. All right? We, we can either lie and seek to protect the flesh, which is what we're doing when we're lying. We're trying to protect the fleshly desires that we have in our heart and our life. We're trying to keep them alive and keep them active so we tell lies. Or we can tell the truth and confess the flesh. Those are the options. We can lie and protect the flesh, continue in that pursuit of whatever that lie is protecting, or we can tell the truth and confess the, confess the flesh. In other words, when we, when we tell the truth, when we confess, when we're honest, we, we drag that lie in our life into the light. So we do. We, we grab that lie, whatever it is in our life, and we drag it into the light where it's exposed and we're able to say, God, I confess this to you. Or we're able to get right with somebody and we're able to be honest and confess the truth and confess the flesh. Those are the options when it comes to lying. So we can either seek to cover up, conceal, or create space for the flesh to operate in our life, or we can tell the truth and confess the desires that we have in the flesh, which uproots, which uproots the opportunity for sin to grow in our life. And Paul says, hey, Christians, new believers in Ephesus, practical thing, speak truth. Tell the truth into the atmosphere of your heart, into the atmosphere of your home to protect yourself from those deadly tornadoes, spiritually, mentally, physically, emotionally. Tell the truth. Then verse 26, look what he does here. Verse 26, I love this. He says, be angry, but don't sin. Be angry, but don't sin. So the second practical thing that Paul tells us is that we need to control 
our anger. Control, control your anger. Be angry, but yet do not sin. He doesn't say, don't get angry. That's not, that's not possible. Anger is, is a natural, God-given emotion. He didn't say, don't get angry. He says, have the right anger for the right reason. That's what that means. Be angry, but yet don't sin. Have the right anger, have it for the right reason. I love this quote from, from John Phillips, kind of puts this in perspective when it comes to having the right anger or the purpose of anger. Listen to what he says. There's nothing wrong with being angry for a righteous cause. Anger can be wholesome. There are times when we should be angry. Anger can be kindled by the fire of hell or by the fire from the altar of God. Anger kindled by the old men is always sinful, destructive, and devilish. Anger kindled by the Holy Spirit at the sight of some injustice, some great depravity, or some monstrous iniquity is indeed to give those who are engaging in a simple activity a reason to fear. The person who cannot get angry at the seduction of an innocent girl, the corrupting of a child, or those who practice and propagate perversion, pornography, must either be spineless or wholly without moral conviction. I like that. He said, hey, be angry at the right things for the right reason. And let that cause a certain response in you. Let it cause a certain response in you. I've got a couple of things I would say to you about that response. I would say, number one, evaluate the reason for the anger. Simply ask yourself that question, what's my motive? What's kindling this anger? Is it the fires of hell, as John Phillips says, or is it the fire from the altar of God? Is it, is it a God-given anger, or is it something that's given by the flesh? What's the motive? And then number two, take time before you respond. Take time. Think about it. Pray about it. Look in God's word for direction and guidance. Take time. And number three, seek to resolve the issue you're angry about as soon as possible. He says at the end of that verse, verse 26, he says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. He's encouraging us as Christ's followers to not sit in anger. Don't, don't let anger continue just to brew in your life and in your heart. When we do that, it leads to resentment. It leads to unforgiveness and to bitterness. He's saying, hey, handle your anger appropriately. Don't delay. Number four, remember the consequences of unbridled anger, the long-term effects. Really, the choice we have to make is simple. When we are angry, we need to choose what we add to the anger. What will you add to it? Will you add malice to it? Will you add some desire to get even to your anger? Will you add some other form of aggression or vengeance? Is that what you're going to add to your anger? Because that always takes you to, to a place we don't need to be. It takes you down the wrong road. Or will you add a desire for justice? 
or righteousness or reconciliation or forgiveness. Will you add that to your anger? Because that's what the kind of anger Paul's talking about. Say, hey, be angry for the right reason and have the right response. Let your anger motivate you to do something about it in a God-honoring way. He doesn't say, don't be angry. He says, control your anger. Control it. Do you know the, what causes most fatalities in tornadoes? Let me show you a picture. Kind of puts this into words. That's a picture from a piece of lumber in the aftermath of the Joplin tornadoes some years ago now, recent years ago, of a piece of lumber being driven through a curb, a cement curb. That's a pretty good picture of what Paul's talking about. When we talk about what we add to our anger, see, it's not the wind of tornadoes that kills people, it's the debris. It's when the wind meets broken pieces of broken things. That's what causes fatalities in tornadoes. That's what causes destruction in our lives with those around us. When our anger gets combined, when our anger gets combined with broken things and broken pieces of our life, and that wind, that, that anger, that frustration is combined with other things that we add to it, that's when it's destructive and that's when it's deadly. And Paul says, don't allow that to happen in your life. Pay attention. Don't let your words be weaponized by the anger, by the wind in your life. Control it. Tell the truth, speak truth into the atmosphere of your heart, of your home, of your community. Control your anger. Control your anger. Number three, he says this, look at this, verse 29. He says, don't let any unwholesome word come out of your mouth. The third practical thing that Paul points to is this. Choose your words carefully. Choose your words carefully. That word for unwholesome there in the Greek is the word sapros. Sapros, it means something that's rotten, something that's putrid, rank, or foul. It's the same word that they would use to describe rotting fish. And Paul said, hey, don't let that kind of language, that kind of speech come out of your mouth. Only what is wholesome, only what is right, only what is true. For those of us who grew up in stormy homes, this is the part of the text we relate to the most. Let's be honest. And I know there are people in this room today who have stories that are similar maybe to mine or others of homes that oftentimes felt like an F5 tornado was just blowing through the parent or loved one, brother, sister, who had a temper or a problem with anger or were abusive, you fill in the blank. And we can hear still in our lives the echoes of those rotten, putrid, foul words. And they have a dramatic impact on our lives. And some of us have had to go through 
counseling or other forms of therapy to, to deal with and to unpack and to make right and to seek to find a path through what we experienced in our lives. And a lot of it had to do with this, words that were unwholesome. It's so easy for us as human beings to slip into carelessness with our words. Certain comebacks, certain responses in the moment that seem either funny or fitting or clever, but they're rotten. And Paul says, don't. Don't let that be a part of the atmosphere of your heart, your home, your community. Because words matter. It's an old saying, think twice, or think, I'm sorry, think before you act, think twice before you speak. Think before you act, think twice before you speak. Why? Because words matter. Proverbs chapter 18, verse 21, it says, life and death are in the power of the tongue. Life and death are in the power of the tongue. When I first started in ministry, age of 19 or 20, my first uh, employment at a church was my little hometown local church. And I was paid $2,400 a year. $2,400 a year. Now, my little Volkswagen Jetta that I, have, that I had and I owned was more than that. It was $227.50 a month. And so I had to find some other jobs. So I did, I, I roofed houses. Uh, with a, I was on a Puerto Rican roofing crew for a whole summer, stories for a different sermon. <laughs> I worked with a local farmer, hauling hay, mending fences, working pigs, cut grass with the commercial landscaping crew. I had a youth worker who was the principal at my local middle school. He had been my principal when I was going through that middle school. He came to me and said, hey, I know you're looking for some opportunities to find work. And so I've got a long-term long sub position that I need to have filled. And I said, okay, I'd love to. Four weeks, every day of the week, come and fill this position. I said, great. Show up the first day, walks me to my classroom. It's not math. It's not science. It's not history. No, 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 no. It's the ISS room. In school suspension. That was my assignment. Now, I knew that room very well. I had a four-week stretch in the seventh grade that I spent in that same room. I knew the process, I knew the people, and I knew what it was all about, and they dropped me off and said, this is your room. And so over those four weeks, I got to spend time with those students every day. They would sit in cubicles, face the wall. You could read a book or you could do coursework if you had it, but you faced the wall all day long, and then you would walk them to the lunchroom. They would sit down at a time that wasn't with the other students, eat their lunch. You'd walk them back. I mean, it was, it was pretty intense. 
And there was a little boy, seventh grade boy I met. His name was Larry. And he was super smart, uh, super smart. But he got in trouble a lot. And I remember him vividly. He didn't dress like other kids. His clothes were raggedy and his shoes were always torn up and he didn't really comb his hair. He kind of had long disheveled hair. And I got the impression that he didn't have a high regard for hygiene. And he always wore this Vietnam era military jacket. Every day, didn't matter if it was 95 degrees outside. He had on raggedy jeans, a t-shirt and that jacket. And he came from a really poor family. And over those weeks, I got the impression that, that Larry had a pretty rough life, both at home and at school, because he was always at, at the uh, receiving end of, of harsh words and jokes at his expense. He was kind of always that kid that was made fun of. And we developed a pretty, pretty cool relationship I was able to encourage him and spend some time with him. We became pretty close, so much so that one morning, the principal felt it was important to, to call me and let me know that, that Larry had taken his own life. It's the first time I ever went to a funeral for a teenager. Luther, Oklahoma, a little small town. His parents, family filed in and I could tell that they we're a pretty rough group. And I remember thinking a lot about the, the, the home that he must have lived in, the, the atmosphere of that home. Probably wasn't one where there was a lot of truth spoken, probably more so lies. Probably wasn't one where people controlled their anger, probably was one where they just let it rip. And it probably wasn't a home that had a lot of wholesome talk, a lot of rotten, putrid, foul talk. And a few weeks after he passed away, someone shared with me the words that Larry had left behind. There was a part of those words I never have forgotten. He said, I'm tired of being made fun of and I'm tired of feeling unloved. Middle school and high school students, would you lift your hand up? If you're, if you're a middle school or a high school student, would you put your hand up just really fast? I just wanna see where you are. Put your hands down. Larry was a seventh grade boy. Proverbs says, life and death are in the tongue. The power of life and death are in the tongue. Students, look for the Larry in your life. Look for that young man or young girl that, that need to be loved, that need a kind word, that need someone to show them some form of encouragement. Adults in the room, look for the Larry in your life. Look for that person who's hurting. Look for that person who's broken. You never know what they're going through. You never know what they're going home to. You never know the atmosphere of their existence. Choose your words carefully. Paul tells us at the end of that verse, he says, hey, if you're gonna speak wholesome words, here's how you do it. If you're taking notes, here's the four practical 
Three practical things you have to know to speak truth into someone's life. He says, our words should edify, so make sure your words build up. That's what the word edify means. Make sure they're positive, make sure they're constructive. Then he says, number two, they should fit the occasion. It means you have to have awareness about the person you're speaking to so you can plug in words into their life, into that spot, to that place where they need to go. Make sure that your words fit the occasion. And he says, make sure they give grace. They should be seasoned with grace. And that word grace simply means unmerited favor. Doesn't mean how they treat you. Doesn't matter how they treat you, rather. We should have words that seek to give grace. Speak truth, control your anger. Be careful with your words. That will dramatically change the atmosphere of your heart, your home, and your life. But what if, what if my life is a storm? Terry, what do I do if I've got a, a metaphorical tornado, an F5 tornado that's just ripping through my life right now? What do I do? Let me show you a picture of the aftermath of the tornado that came through in May of 1999. That's the area, the city of Moore, which is south side of Oklahoma City. That's I-35 you see there. This is the metro. That's part of, just part of the path that tornado took. 6.30 or so at nights when that storm touched down, began making its way through. This is part of the path. Can you see the, there's a brick building, a red brick building there in the, in the, in the background. Let's zoom in a little bit. Let me show you what this building is. That's First Baptist Church, Moore, Oklahoma. The tornado lifted off the ground just before it hit this church. Let me show you another picture. At the front of that church, there's a 70-foot cross big white cross. As people in the aftermath of this storm began to make their way out of the rubble, you could hear people crying out for help. The sun had set. It's dark. They're covered in darkness. They had no idea what to do. No hope. Rescuers went to this church with floodlights. You know what they did? They lit up the cross. They lit up the cross. And in the cover of darkness, as people would begin to make their way out of the rubble, covered in debris, many of them wounded, they looked up and they saw the cross and they said, there's hope. I'm heading to that cross. What do you do? What do you do when you're going through the storm? You're in this room today, family, individual, and you can relate to some of these words. Your life has been ripped apart for different ways or by different ways for different reasons. What do you do? You look up and you start walking to the cross. 
He's ready to rescue and receive all who are hurting.